0: Well, great singing this morning, and uh, friends, I really pray that the song that we just sang together is not just a, uh, a great tune, but is a great reality. Oh, that God would use us to have an impact in the city in ways that we cannot even fathom would love it. If that's going to happen, we're going to need to uh, be more and more of And what we're terming as a full-throttle ministry, Team Harvest, this is about full-throttle together. We've got incredible opportunities ahead, and I believe that the series that we're starting today is really going to help us significantly so in these coming weeks and months. Because today, we officially end our series through Exodus. We had spent 20 weeks going through the book of Exodus and learning about The marvelous work of God there, and we're going to be spending the next three months, September, October, and November, going through the letter, the book of Titus, and in essence, as you see kind of from the series logos or pictures of these two series, we're really going from very much of a journey walk through Exodus to uh, (laughs) a different deal. I would uh, term it as a precision, full throttle, all out, screaming bobsled ride together. And uh, what we're going to be looking towards is helping us to become a more precise, all out, screaming team for the Lord. And my job today is really to introduce us to this book of Titus. Today's going to be a different day. I had the choice of just going and spending most of our time in the first four verses of Titus, the introduction, and kind of just elaborating off of that, but uh, our small groups are starting a series and, uh, through a workbook called How to Study Your Bible, and a big, big component of that is the issue of context, and so often... We become poor students of the Scripture when we are poor students of history relating to the time of the writing of Scripture. And we go and we jump in without understanding what's been going on, and so we do a poor job of actually applying biblical truth to real life the way that it was intended. So, so much of my job today is going to be an information job for you today, trying to make it fun and enjoyable But uh, today's an information day and less about a a verse-by-verse day. We are going to cover the uh, first four verses of Titus, but at the very end of our time together. Uh, So what I'd like to do is like us to begin with some visuals. I'm a very visual guy, and I think they really help us. So I want to bring up a satellite picture here of the Mediterranean Sea region. I love satellite pictures. One, because they're really cool. Um, and, And they're just cool. It just still blows my mind we can do that. Uh, one it 's just really cool, but two, it makes what we 're talking about real won well, 't for you to understand so often we can use and back of your Bibles and so forth. I mean they 're helpful tools like maps and various things like that that can be used, but oftentimes they look kind of cartoony, and we get this idea that Bible stuff is kind of like in a past cartoony world. I live in real world i don 't get the connection. Uh, I love them because they help make this reality. Listen, we're talking about real people, real places in real time, okay? So as we look at this, the area that I've highlighted in yellow there, that's where we've come in Exodus. We've been down in the land of Egypt, the, the Red Sea, the uh, the Sinai region there, kind of to the right, and actually to the right and a little bit off of that is the land of Midian area. That's where we've been the last 20 weeks. Um, In that time period and week after week we've seen God show himself big and at the end of Exodus in chapter 40 last week, we saw how about 1445 BC or in that area, uh, Exodus 40, they're over here in this land uh, outside of Egypt and the tabernacle was built. Listen, God's glory was dwelling among these former polytheistic slaves who were not real, true worshipers of Yahweh. But a big God did a big work, showing himself big, all the way to the place to where they're at a big deal point. And the big deal point here, what I love about Exodus 40, is it kind of, I left there on purpose. Uh, We didn't complete the story, it goes on in the story, but part of Exodus 40 has this tension to it. It has this feel that there are God's people sovereignly pulled out by his grace, uh, pulled together, taught things, learned things, and then there they build the tabernacle and the glory of God dwells among them. And the tension is, is now what are they going to do? God has brought a people together and put them at a place. They're positioned, and there's so much potential opportunity ahead. I love it because it leaves this tension of what's going to happen from there. And I love leaving it at that point and jumping to Titus because there's so much similarity. What's God going to do with them? Well, We travel from the tabernacle and we go to the island of Crete. On the satellite picture, it kind of looks like there's two islands there. Actually, there's one. I'll bring one up here in a little while. But uh, that's actually clouds that are over the island. So it's a lower, lower portion of that. But Crete is an island that is in the Mediterranean Sea. It's south of Greece, south of Turkey. And I want for us to understand that There's been a lot happening since the tabernacle and 65 A.D. in Crete. Like, we could call it 1,500 years-ish. And there's a few things that have taken place during 1,500 years. Let me just remind us of some of those. Why? Because, folks, I think there's oftentimes a tendency when we jump around in the Scriptures to forget the fact that God is moving time in a plan. We're not just jumping from a random event to another random story event. This is God's timeline. A sovereign God is moving all things to where he wants them to be going. Let me just remind you of a couple things that have taken place in the last 1,500 years. Things like the people down here encamped around the, the, the fence, the portable fence. Uh, the Israelites did conquer the promised land and go in. At least the next generation did. Later on, there's King Saul. Then there was King David came to the scene and Davidic kingdom, high point of all of kind of, if you will, Jewish history. The Davidic kingdom is there and Solomon comes on the scene uh, and he builds the temple. Later on, the temple is destroyed in Jerusalem. We have the ministries of Elijah and the ministries of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and so forth. There's a new temple that's built. Esther's on the scene. Malachi's on the scene. The Old Testament concludes was that for a quick run old testament concludes and then we come into what's called 400 years of silence it's the intertestament time it's the time between the old testament and the new testament and god is silent prophetically for 400 years where did he go he's there but God is working during this period of time. And period, part of this period of time includes Alexander the Great coming on the scene and God using him sovereignly, literally, to reform almost the face, face of the known world at the time. Bringing them together in pretty much a common language and so many cultural commonalities. Road transportations and things were being constructed and built. And the world was changing dramatically during that period of time. Why? But bada bada bum Because King Herod came on the scene and then Jesus. Jesus Christ comes on the scene, and Jesus Christ lives. Jesus Christ dies on the cross. He's crucified on the cross. He rises from the dead. He ascends into heaven, and we're into the book of Acts. In Acts, we see in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes and descends and fills the people there, and they're able to begin proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Then a little while later, in fact, we're going to go there in a while, Stephen is martyred, stoned to death. And then a little while later, a man named Saul comes to know Jesus Christ. His name's changed to Paul, and he begins going on some missionary journeys. He goes on one missionary journey, two missionary journeys, three missionary journeys. And then later on, he's arrested, taken to Rome. And then he's freed, and it's about 65 AD. How was that for 1,500 years? By the way, a whole lot of other things did happen in that time. But that just kind of gets us to where we are where we are at. The time is 65 A.D., right around there. Titus is assigned to bear the torch of Jesus Christ in a leadership capacity to the church in Crete. This is where I bring in the cartoon people. He was real, but he was not the little Caesar's delivery man. <laughs> it kind of looks like that, doesn't it? Two eyes on one side of his face. Um... Titus is on the island of Crete, as well as along that, his counterpart, his ministry partner, Timothy, is further up north in Ephesus, right in the region of Turkey, modern-day Turkey. Off to uh, your left is Paul. Paul is off the map um, in an area. He is actually on his way towards Uh, Greece towards Nicopolis he's either on his way or he's in Nicopolis and Paul is writing he actually writes a letter to Timothy called first Timothy and then he writes a letter to Titus called isn't it original you know he's writing these letters from there that puts us on the scene this is the setting that I want for us to begin working from today now, for me, there's four questions that this comes out, or four items I want to spend our time with today, because as I said, this is a getting a grasp of what, as we jump into Titus in coming weeks, what's going on? What's the context? There's four things I want to talk about. One, I want to talk about who is Paul. I want to talk about him because I know there's a number of people here uh, who may say, uh, you know, I know Paul, I know his story. But I also want to tell you, and I love this fact, there's a number of people here who are kind of like, I don't even know the story of Saul or Paul. And I want to tell you, I love the fact of that. So we're all going to, together, we're going to catch up and be, so we're at the same place with who Paul is. We're going to talk about Paul. We're going to talk about Titus. We're going to talk about the island of Crete, and we're going to be talking about this letter that shot over here to him. So four things, Paul, Titus, Crete, and the letter. What are the four things? Very good. Let me pray, and we're going to go. God, thank you so much for the working of your hand in history. You have been there from the beginning. You've carried it through. And you are on the throne today. You are aware we're here. And we love that fact. Help us to be good learners today. May you show through as we look at these individuals. It's not about the individuals. It's about the God of these individuals. In your name we pray. Amen. So, what was the first one? Paul. Grab your Bibles. Let's go to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. Let's learn a little bit about this guy. Acts chapter 7. We're going to go to verse 58. Acts chapter 7, verse 58. In the New Testament, if you don't have a Bible, we've got some people coming around. You can borrow a Bible. We're going to be going to some texts. And uh, we're not going to Titus until the very end. Acts chapter 7, verse 58. We want to learn about this guy who we're calling Paul at this point. Verse 58. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. No, not Paul. We're talking about Stephen. Stephen is a guy who lived at the time, who's proclaiming Christ as the Messiah. And they took him out of the city, called him a heretic, heretic, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named what? Saul, well, that's not Paul, that's Saul. Okay, well, we got this guy named Saul right at this moment. This, that's the name. People are, these people are laying their garments at his feet. Why are they doing that? Is it because uh, Stephen's a friend of his? Is it because uh, he doesn't know Stephen because he just happens to like be there and he's got arms to hold their clothes? Uh, who is this guy? Let's take a look. Verse 59, and as they were stoning Stephen, he, Stephen, called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Wow. And when he said this, I love this, he fell asleep. Hey, listen to me. Good reminder. Death does not equate to done, death equates to transfer. That's what this is saying. When Stephen died, he's not done. This is about transfer. That's why it says he's asleep. Well, that tells us a little bit about Saul. He's there at the stoning of Stephen. Let's learn a little bit more. Go over to the right to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. We're going to learn exactly the mindset of this boy, this dude named Saul. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, okay, wow, apparently this guy doesn't like these guys, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he, Paul, I'm sorry, Saul, found any belonging to the way, the way was a term that was used in that day referring to followers of Christ anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Oh, now we get the idea. Here's this guy named Saul. This guy named Saul is a guy who's actually very powerful. Understand, it doesn't tell us here, but we know this. Saul was a Pharisee of Pharisees, tribe of Benjamin, zealot. He was raised in the Harvard-Stanford of the day. He was incredibly smart. He spoke Greek. He spoke Hebrew. He knew it. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. In other words, this. He was religious above religious. If you think you're religious, he was religiouser. Okay? That's basically what he says. You can go to Philippians chapter 3 and take a look, and he tells about, this is what I was. Listen, it's not about being religious. Paul was about being religious. That's who he was. And he was such a zealot. He was such a religious man as a young man that he had was condoned and affirmed and given the authority by the high priest of the day to go to Damascus to find people who were followers of Jesus Christ. Men, women, didn't matter. Grab a hold of them, take them in because to them they were heretics because they proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah and to the high priest that was heresy because they did not see Christ as the Messiah. And so he's going, grabbing them, taking them back. But the little thing happened on the way. Let's read about the little thing, because we want to learn about question number one is, who is Paul? By the way, Saul turns into Paul, okay? So when I'm jumping back and forth, if you don't know that, that's what's going on. Saul's name later on is changed to Paul. Let's pick up verse three. I'm going to read about 20 verses here to get the story Now, as he went on his way, where was he going? Very good. He was approached. He approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around, and boom. And I don't have the sound effects for for that one this week. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? By the way, that comment right there is actually very important, because Saul knew that this was more than just his buddies with him playing a joke. He knew that this was more than a human. This was a divine moment. This was the kind of moment, here's this guy, understand, he's religious. And there he is, this thing takes place, and he's like, Lord, what? Okay, this is a divine moment, he knows it. And he said, or as he said, who are you, Lord? And it responded back, I am Jesus. Get out of here. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless. Oh, by the way, the men traveling with him were not the kind of men who were Jesus followers. They were going along with him to help grab people to take them back. We don't know what happened to them, but uh, 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 I wish I knew what happened to those two guys. The men who were with him, or two or however many, stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Spooky. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. He was blind. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. Three days. Listen, during this three day of time, this was a time to, in essence, hey, sit in the corner and think about this for a little bit. This was God's divine three-day time out for Baal. And what we know about Paul, Paul was incredibly intelligent. This was no buffoon. This was no guy looking for a crutch. This is no little wimpy, sad sack out in the fields, nomad just trying to figure out and being all weird. This guy was like the next man in line for religious hierarchy and political power. And he sat for three days pondering what had just taken place. This is called a paradigm shift. A whole new worldview. Listen, folks, can you imagine at that moment everything you've been about, everything you have been such a strong, zealous zealot for, you have now become confronted with the fact that it's wrong. Verse ten, and now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, "Ananias," and he said, "Here I am." <laughs> I like the way it talks. Those Ananias, yes, here I am, and oh, it's just me. And the Lord said to him, "Rise and go to the street called Straight." I wonder what that street was like. And at the house of Judas, took. By the way, this is not Judas of the disciples; a uh, different Judas. The house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, which was not uncommon at all for Saul to have done. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias and came in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority over the chief priest to bind all who call in your name. He knew what was going on. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a what? A chosen instrument. A chosen instrument. Do not forget that statement until the end. We're going to come back to that. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, <laughs> there's a paradigm shift. Brother Saul, Right there. This was one who was saying that Jesus Christ had nothing to do with God. Understand, Son of God is not child of God. It's not next of kin of God. That's not what it's talking about. The term Son of God is equivalent of. It is God. That's what the term is understanding to be taught here. Verse 21, And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who, uh, being let down from, I'm sorry, page switch, who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name. And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength, this was one tough dude, and confounded the Jews who lived in in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. You are kidding me. This is the story of Paul. And I want to tell you, if you're someone who's been kind of wondering or a bit apprehensive or thinking through this whole Jesus-God thing, you know what? Good. I'm really glad you're doing that. And you should. And that's a good thing. It doesn't offend me at all. I love it when people are thinking. Why? Because Paul was thinking through. People, listen, Christianity is about truth. It's for thinking people. It's not this crush, wimpy kind of deal. This is about thinking people who see life and see truth and put it all together and come to a conclusion on it. And that's what happened in the life of Saul. Well, that's who Paul was, but... It didn't stop there because then later on in Acts 13, uh, Saul, his name changes to Paul, and he and Barnabas go on the first missionary journey, and they leave the area of Jerusalem, Israel, down south there, in the right bottom corner there, and they travel in some of this area and begin telling other people about the risen Christ. Then later on, some years later, there's a second missionary journey, and it goes even further; it extends out even more. Then later on, there's a third missionary journey years later, and it goes back to some places as well as continue on in some new places. Then Paul is arrested and he's taken to Rome, all these maps, and here he comes up here. By the way, do you see something in the middle there? That is called the island of Crete. And on this as he's taken to Rome because Paul says, no, you cannot try me this way. I am a Roman citizen. Take me there. And so here he comes in all this, so he's on his way. And by the way, Crete has a part in this. Paul's arrested and he's taken to Rome, then he's freed, in Titus 3.12 tells us that either on his way or while he's in Nicopolis, he writes this letter to Titus. Please understand this, that everything I just went through from conversion in essence to this point is about 24 years of time. So it's not just like a a three-month expedition time with various things taking place, but this is a 24-year period of time. Paul has been a follower of Christ for some 24 years, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ for some 24 years now, all over the known world at the time. That's the person of Paul. Who's the second person we're going to talk about? Titus, that's right, the little Caesar's man. That's probably what you're going to remember it by. Titus is here in the little uh, island of Crete. What do we know about Titus? Well, frankly, we really don't know a whole lot. We do know some things, though. But compared to what I just went through with Paul, we don't know a whole lot about this man named Titus. But let me tell you some of the things that we do know. We do know that Titus was a Greek man. He was a Gentile. He was not, he had no percentage of Jewish heritage in him or genetic background in him. He was a Greek. That's important here for just a minute. Uh, We don't know how or when Titus came to Christ, but we know that he did come to Christ, and we know that he served in ministry along with Paul. Basically, he was an understudy. Paul never did ministry alone, always had people along with him side by side. We know a couple key ministry events. One was the council in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem council. In fact, go to Galatians chapter 2, Galatians chapter 2. Uh, the Jerusalem council is explained in Acts 15, but I want for us to key here. This was a council where key leaders, key uh, leaders of communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ were getting together. And we must understand in this day and age, with the time of Christ, uh, his resurrection and ascension and Uh, with the Spirit coming in and so forth. This is a transition time. People alive at that time were alive before Christ came, and they're alive after Christ came, and there's this whole process of theology transition. God has, in essence, implemented a new administrative plan. The Messiah has come and there's implications of that. But there are people who have been following and thinking and living under this old administration plan through the Old Testament. And by the way, getting a whole bunch of it messed out of line because people in the Old Testament were saved by faith through grace as the people in the New Testament are saved by faith by grace. But in the process all of these followings of Christ, the identity with Christ was in all these other various identities with God, was by all these other ways. And they're having a hard time transitioning these things. So they come together in Jerusalem, and the main conversation is about circumcision. Now, we like don't get that conversation, do we? But you got to put yourself back in that day. Because the Old Testament, God had instituted circumcision as a way of identifying with Christ or identifying with Him. And so in this transition time, they're coming together and talking about it. Why? Let's fill it in. Galatians chapter 2. Then after 14 years, I, Paul went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. This was after the first missionary journey, taking Titus along with him. Titus was with him at this meeting, and he went up and became a, a I'm sorry, verse two, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain, verse three, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised. Why? Because all these Jews are coming together, have been proclaiming, yeah, come to Christ and get circumcised. Jesus plus. Jesus plus the old stuff. And it's no. Paul's like, no, that's not the way it is. It's Jesus done. Let's keep reading. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Verse 4, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. We know about the slavery from the last 20 weeks in Exodus. Verse 5, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. What is that? This. Jesus is the Messiah died, rose again, end of story, receive him. That was the gospel. And yet it's a Jesus plus thing. So they're at this meeting, why do I bring all this up? Because the Jerusalem council, Titus was there and Titus, if you will, he was the guy they're looking at. Listen, he's come to Christ, he's a Gentile, he needs to be circumcised to be identified with in the old way. And Paul's like, no, that's not how this works. Why do I bring it? Because Titus was there and he's watching it all. And he's seeing the arguments, he's seeing the issues, he's a Gentile, and he's seeing the Jewish heritage issue and how that fits into the gospel now. All this stuff is taking place, and Titus is watching it, he's hearing the arguments back, he's watching Paul, he's watching them. Listen, this is God sovereignly putting him at a point point in a place that is going to prepare him for ministry in Crete. Because when he is in Crete, we're going to see in weeks to come, this kind of similar issue comes up. What is that? Bringing the old stuff plus Jesus into the equation. And God is sovereignly preparing Titus to be able to know how to argue and understand that battle issue. Another thing we know is that Titus was in Corinth. He was there for about a year He was a key part of the ministry with Paul there. In fact, he's mentioned nine times in 2 Corinthians, and he is the one who delivers the letter of 2 Corinthians to the church in Corinth. He's a key player in this. I'll just leave it as a problem-noted church, an idol-worshiping church, a secular church. God sovereignly gave him the ability, the opportunity, to watch ministry in a religious, heritage, Jewish structure, and God also in his sovereignty gave Titus the opportunity to look and see and watch ministry in a secular, uh, a non-Jewish culture as well. all of this preparing him for Titus for Titus in Crete. Well, the next thing we know, Titus is in Crete. So that's Paul that's Titus. Titus, I think we could say, is an initiator. I think we could say he's a troubleshooter. He's a go-getter. He's not as much of the timidity kind of person that Timothy is, but he's placed in Crete. So, Paul, Titus, what's the third? Crete. All right, here we go with Crete. Let me give you a little geography. We've got a new map here, kind of a topographical satellite map. And you can see on it that the island of Crete is a pretty mountainous territory. There's, about, uh, uh, there's a number of the peaks are over 8,000 uh, foot sea level, which means they're pretty significant. number of them are uninhabitable. So you have these people living there. Now you go back in 64 AD and you say there's this island off of Greece and Turkey. These are probably people that are uh, out there on, uh, on their lounge chairs, on the beach, Uh, eating pineapple, drinking out of coconuts, and uh, what is it, body surfing or whatever you call it, doing that kind of stuff. I want for you to understand that was not the situation that was there. These people were actually quite advanced people. In fact, in 3000 BC, for the next 2000 years, the people on the island of Crete were incredibly successful. These were real go-getter people. Even way back at that time, they were known all over the world, actually. They had built colossal palaces. In fact, some of those palaces we have uh, uh, relics of today that that in it they think were either taken out by volcano or earthquake. But we have some of these colossal palaces for in the day that were built. These people were known for metalworking, for jewelry. They were known for just a variety of various things that they had. They shipped them all over the world. They were skilled. They were artisans. These are smart people. Not the island nomads drinking out of coconuts with the little umbrellas. In uh, 67 BC, they came under Roman rule. And in Acts 27, we see them like we saw on the map, where uh, part of Paul's journey to Rome under house arrest. As far as the people, we first see them in the Bible show up in Acts chapter 2. That's important. Because Acts chapter 2 is the time when the Spirit of God comes. Acts chapter 2, verse 11, we see that there were some people from Crete there. Exactly what is the impact of that on the island, we don't know specifically, but that has to have some impact. Religious uh, heritage on the island of Crete, very much like we just left out of uh, our study in, in Egypt. Polytheists, worshiping idols, uh, believed in an afterlife. There were many uh, pagan temples that were there. And let me read one verse out of Titus chapter 1. Let's all go there uh, because you can keep that open then on your lap. Titus chapter 1. And if you were to describe the people of Crete, how would they be described? Here we go. Titus chapter 1, verse 12. Look at how they're described by one of their own. Verse 12. One of the Cretans, okay? This is one of their own. Kind of sounds like Star Trek, doesn't it? One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, here they go, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Please understand that this is not really saying that this is a a follower of Jesus Christ that's just doing smack talk and has got a bad attitude day. This is one of their own, describing them as liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. At least at the time of 67 A.D. I I, want to mention this, and I don't want to be hard here, but I do want to point this out. I do think there's some quite good cultural similarity going on in our country today. And I just say this, there is a lot of truth and a lot of untruth going on in our world today around us. There's a lot of lies that are going on. A lot of heretical untruth. There's a lot of evil in our world today. You know what? I cannot stand personally watching local news. And you know why? Because you always find out about who's the next rapist in town or the next loser. Let me clarify it this way you just seem like you hear about just the evil creeps, don't you? And I'm not one of those guys who's all a downer about the world you're a Christian and a downer. But I am saying this. We live in a world where there's a lot of evil out there. We also live in a world, and I'm sad to say this, where one of the things that characterizes our culture is lazy gluttons. I don't like saying that. But it's like the prosperity and the success of our great country that I love It's like as the generations go on, it's like we get lazier and lazier and more gluttonous and more gluttonous. Things aren't bad, but we've kind of lost some of the delight of hard work in many ways. Well, that's Paul, that's Titus, that's Crete. And lastly, what is this letter about? Well, Paul writes a personal letter. This is a letter this is not skywriting. this is not an advertisement. It's not a telephone book. It's not a class textbook. Those are all different kind of genres of writing. This is a letter. Karen and I still have letters in a box from when we were dating. We dated for five years. We met senior year in high school, and during college, she was going to college in Michigan. I was going to college at that time at University of Minnesota, and we're writing letters, and we got this box of letters, and you read a letter differently than you read the newspaper. Why? Because it's a different genre. You read a letter differently than when you would see an advertisement on TV, I want for you to understand that these are letters. If you don't know the Bible well, these are letters. This is a, a letter, under the, a God letter, uh, written by Paul, inspired. Uh, you're going to be learning about that in your small groups here in the coming weeks. But with that, this is a letter that was written to Titus. And it's personal. Paul loves this guy. He's spent years, if decades, with this guy. And it's as though he's saying to Titus, Titus, if the ministry in Crete is going to be a full-throttle impact ministry for Christ. There are some things that you need to make happen there. There are some things that you need to put in place. And by the way, Titus, if you're going to help and establish a full-throttle ministry there in, in Crete, then in as well out of this, you've got to help the people understand to learn how they're supposed to be together. You could summarize it this way. The book of Titus is here, three chapters. Chapter number one, in essence, is about Paul talking to Titus about leadership in the church. Chapter 2 is Paul talking to Titus about life in the church. Chapter 3 is about Paul talking about Titus, about the church living in its world. How to do that, being effective with that, and having impact. That's Titus. Paul has been there. He knows they're liars. (laughs) He knows they're heretics. And he knows there's a great opportunity. Let's do this. Let's wrap our final minutes by reading the first four verses. Today's an informational day. Just getting started, okay? I want to set the context of what's happening. That's Paul. That's Titus. That's Crete. That's the big picture of the letter. Let's just read the intro and quit. I'm going to make a couple comments here. I may stop while I'm reading. Are you used to me doing that? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, what's the first word? Stop. okay. Paul, you now know about Paul. Take everything we've talked about, that's Paul. The guy who hated Christ, hated Christians, thought he was a fake, hated people who believed him, thought they were fakes. Until one day on the road to Damascus, not looking for Christ, Christ looked for him and grabs a hold of him. That's the Paul we're talking about. Look at the next words, Paul, a servant of God. Oh, there's 20 years of ministry behind that statement of anything he could say about himself. Trained at Harvard, Stanford, Yale, can speak multiple language. I write like a lawyer. That's the way Paul is. In fact, these first four verses are actually one sentence in Greek. That's Paul. Thank you, dude. Paul is a servant of God. Secondly, he says an apostle of Christ Jesus. Basically, he's been given the authority to do what he's doing in ministry by the resurrected Christ himself. He has apostolic authority and for three reasons, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Listen, Paul is all about the faith. Paul wants people to come to know Christ and to put their faith in him. Paul wants people who have come to Christ in faith to be able to grow in their faith. Paul is all about the sake of the faith. By the way, a number of you, I know a number of you in reading this are all of a sudden, you see a term in there and it says God's elect and you're freaking on me. And if you know what I'm talking about, I'm going to talk to you for a minute. Because the question comes out of this is, wait a second, he's God's elect, uh, but, but uh, so does God, does, does, does God predestine everything to happen? Do I not have a choice? How can this work? Predestination versus free will. Those of you who know that argument issue, it's a good, good thing. Here's the answer to it, yes. Listen, remember what it said in Acts you are my chosen instrument. Please understand this. Paul was not looking for Christ at all. Christ came and grabbed a hold of him. And when you look on this issue, I'm just going to tell you here so that you're aware as we, as we go through various uh, passages of Scripture, when we come to passages that talk about like this, God's elect, guess what I'm teaching? God says that people, He, he elects people. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. It says that he's chosen people. You know what? God's chosen people. Oh, by the way, then when we come across passages like John 1, 12, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Or when we come to passages like Romans 10, 9, and 10, this says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the you will be saved. Well, wait a second. That's talking about you've been chosen in election. The other's talking about free will. And the answer is the scripture talks about both. And I'm just going to tell you where I'm and maybe you have a different position on it, but I'm just going to tell you this. The Bible talks about both. I can't fully explain how both of them work, but I do know this. The Bible teaches it that way, so I'm going to teach it that way. Otherwise, go home, get a razor blade, and cut the parts out you don't like. And I am serious about that. And that doesn't fit. I have no problem with this because I know one day when I stand before God and I have my top 10 questions to be able to ask him, and this is going to be in the top 10. And when I walk away from that conversation, I'm going to go, oh, so that's how it all worked. Here's the only way I can explain it today, and I think I heard this from someone else that has been the best way for me to kind of grab this together, and it's this. From God's perspective, he chose you if you know Christ as your Savior. From my perspective, I chose God. Both work together. Theologically, is that fun? And maybe for some of you are all, we want to go home. Okay, we got to go real quick. For the sake of the faith of God's like, some of you want to egg me or stone me with Stephen. For the sake of the faith, real quick. And their knowledge of the truth. Paul was about truth. He was about faith. He was about truth. For the knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, is which produces godliness. Listen, truth moves us towards godliness. If you want to be a person who becomes more and more like Jesus Christ, then you have to be in truth. If the eyes are not here, the feet will not go there. He's about faith. He's about truth. Verse 2, in hope of eternal life. Paul is about faith. He's about truth. And he's about hope. Not this willy-nilly hope like, oh, I hope it's better weather tomorrow. No, this is about talking about a convinced hope. I have a hope, a confident hope that's set and secured. My word, this guy has a hope. He's heard from the man. And he has a hope, and it's about a hope of eternal life. Listen, all of the... Remember in Acts there, it says Jesus is saying, I'm going to tell him about all the suffering he's got to go through. If anybody's hoping for the coming eternal life, Paul is. It's like, please, I want to get there. Get out of this wretched place in a hope of eternal, which God who never lies. Why would that be said? because they're liars. Listen, do you see why understanding context can help the scriptures be better understood? Why would Paul write that? Paul wrote that because they're known to be liars. And so when Titus has other people read this, they know this is a God who does not lie. I'm over time. Real quick, promise before the ages began. Verse 3, let's jump to verse 4. To Titus, you know Titus now, right you know about Titus my true child in a common faith that's likely the statement that talks about the fact that uh, he very possibly came to Christ through Paul grace and peace from God the father or Jesus Christ our savior real quick verse 5 this is why i paul left you in crete titus this is why i left you in crete so that you might dot 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 coming weeks paul put titus on the island of crete for a purpose to help that church crank it into gear. Full throttle, baby. And we're going to be learning in these coming weeks about if we're going to be a kind of church that's full throttle for Christ, growing more and more towards that, we're going to learn from this newer pastor at this newer ministry and for us as well. All right? That's some information. That's Paul. That's Titus. That's Crete. That's the letter let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the time together. Thank you for your goodness, your patience, your love for us. Thank you that you are you. Father, it's all about you. I pray we would be a church that holds your name high. We are a church that is effective for you. May we be humble. May we be learners. May we put these things into place and practice we're going to be learning about in the coming weeks. Why? Because we want to have impact for you. This city is a great place for a people like us to be able to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and to grow together full throttle, only by your work. In Christ's name we pray, amen.